Hello, my friends. Today we're talking to Achilles, the head of human motion and control at Parker Hannifin. And we discuss how Achilles and his team are building exoskeletons that help paralyzed people walk, how they worked with Apex Ridge reliability to make sure these exoskeletons don't fail in the field, and the future of the medical exoskeleton industry. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Tell me a little bit about your origin story. How did how did your career kind of start? I was born and raised in Cyprus, which <laughs> for uh, which is a little island half the size of New Jersey in the Eastern Mediterranean. By the way. Uh, so, and thanks to a scholarship program uh, called Fulbright, I, um, when my first time I flew out of Cyprus was to Manhattan, New York. It's <laughs> a long flight. <laughs> yeah, long flight. And, uh, you know, can you imagine the culture shock from this little, you know, Cyprus has less than a million people, by the way. That's it. So, uh, you need, you, you imagine Sicily. It's very similar. And uh, so uh, um, New York, Columbia, and started engineering there. I ended up with a master's in uh, in robotics or and control systems. Those kind of my passions, and uh, ended up applying that to the Middle East. Basically, my first job was building air bases in Saudi Arabia uh, for some new aircraft they bought. Did that for a couple of years, uh, then came back to New York. Came kind of a home for me. Columbia again and did my MBA. And at that point, uh, the venerable old uh, technology and strategy firm uh, called Arthur DeLittle, uh, they're famous for creating silk out of a sow's ear, ears, <laughs> as they were saying. So they're, they're, they're uh, behind a number of innovations, everything from like Bluetooth to things like that. They kind of uh, innovated the whole field of consulting in many ways, a Boston Consulting Group with their spin-off. So it's an interesting oh, wow. group of people. And so they somehow discovered me in New York, you know, basically career services called me one day and said, you know, this group in, your, in Boston wants to talk to you. Uh, and that was because they kind of, I combined apparently, and I don't even know how they triangulated that, but that I combined kind of business skills that I got from Columbia with familiarity uh, of the Middle East environment, specifically Saudi Arabia at the time. And it turned out that they had a long history with the region, everything from helping found a lot of the ministries there uh, of the country to developing literally the five-year plan of Saudi Arabia every five years. Like the, uh, the government the, the, plan? The country plan. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> right, it was done by economists in Boston. <laughs> and so and so anyway, I, I, I joined the, the strategic consulting side of them and ended up doing some, uh, you know, quite a few, was well, similar in your position, right? I ended up, you know, like a, a deer in the headlights. I had all these cool projects, you know, everything from leading the feasibility study for a new skyscraper, the first skyscraper in Riyadh that ended up being built. That was for a notable uh, Prince investor there, then uh, an academy that also got built. Then, um, uh, you know, I, I designed the innovation campaign of the national oil company of, uh, of Saudi Arabia called Aramco. To, wow. uh, I did a variety of restructuring and strategy cases and Ended up my career in the Middle East and consulting uh, uh, in the Middle East uh, with actually leading this large project of merging the four regional power utilities of Saudi Arabia into one. Uh, so one national company. So and after that, I basically requested to start doing American work. <laughs> <laughs> At that point, I decided I was more American than European. Uh, and then I came to the U.S. and I started doing work with corporate clients, typically around um, business portfolio work, corporate portfolio. In other words, helping corporates in uh, in the U.S. figure out their, you know, which businesses to keep, which businesses to grow, which businesses to divest, that kind of thing. Uh, but also working with uh, general managers of established businesses and turning around their businesses and, uh, you know, that kind of thing. 
So that's basically how I started doing work in the US. So that's my kind of my story in consulting. And then, uh, you know, one of those clients, uh, Parker Hannafin, basically hired me in in their executive ranks. Oh, nice. So you you came into Parker through uh, you like consulting them on corporate strategy, consulting engagement. Nice. Yes, and that's kind of a theme for me. It's kind of I I am. Uh, uh, I would say an ambivert, as I call it, kind of like, uh, you know, the way that people, I'm not very good at selling myself in a way. So it's, it's I think, but but kind of, I, I grow on people by working with them. <laughs> <laughs> and after a while, they're like, okay, I guess I like this guy, I like the results, you know, so uh, let's, uh, let's continue to work with him. And that has been really a theme, you know, throughout my career. So that's how I always, uh, you know, get my next job is kind of, an interaction I had from before. So nice. And so today I know you're working on some really cool stuff at Parker Hannafin mm-hmm. doing mm-hmm. exoskeletons to help people move. How did that exactly. get started? Right. <laughs> exactly. So as I said, I joined Parker as a corporate guy first. I, I by, by the way, this is my 17th year at Parker. Wow. So it's been I've been here for a while. Uh, and, but I had three different careers at Parker itself, you know, so, uh, so the first was being more kind of a corporate strategy guy along the lines of what I was doing before. And then kind of the second stage of that was, I worked with the president of one of the major businesses here to take, to develop his strategy along with his team and take it to the board. And then he asked me to join his team to kind of, uh, grow the business. That was the uh, engineer materials group of Parker. So the big thrust of that strategy was to move kind of elastomeric, polymeric uh, capabilities that that group had into the medical space and then also the oil and gas space. And so uh, through the first bit, the medical bit, I was exposed to, uh, we, I worked with the Cleveland Clinic which is another institution in the Cleveland area where Parker is based, right? To basically bring together surgeons of the Cleveland Clinic and engineers of Parker. And then we kind of ran a joint stage gate process <laughs> where we had ideation sessions, literally watching uh, surgeries being performed and asking the surgeons, what could you do better here or whatever would you need, you know? And then device ideas came out of that. And then we basically would develop prototypes, test them and kind of run them through. So through that program, I commercialized a couple of devices and one for, it was a drug delivery device for, for cancer therapy in the brain. And the other was, uh, you know, it sounds simpler than it is, but it's kind of like a sheath for endoscopes. Uh, both were commercialized, uh, you know, licensed or uh, spin-offs were created around them. And so uh, at the same time, while I was doing that, corporate, uh, it sounds there was a team at corporate at Parker that was watching carefully uh, technology developments uh, around um, kind of uh, applying Parker's strength or capabilities, which is, we call them motion and control. You know, Parker prides itself. You know, Parker just for, it's kind of a quiet company. It's in the, in our culture. We don't like to kind of be very uh, uh, glamorous. Uh, we like to be behind our customers. And so it's actually a $14 billion in sales and probably $40 billion in market capitalization at the moment, wow. doing very well. Uh, but basically, it moves and controls things. So we have technologies that, uh, you know, uh, appear in all over the plane, an aeroplane, and we serve everyone, you know, Airbus and uh, Boeing. Boeing is a 100-year-old customer of Parker, so long relationship. John Deere, the same. Caterpillar, the same. So basically, under Caterpillar and John Deere, you see a lot of assemblies at Parker basically. And so, again, we move and control things. And so it was an aspiration of our leadership team to try to move the technology into the human space. They felt that that area was unexplored. And they had a team of PhDs uh, looking at things that would make that happen. So they noticed, for example, in the early 2000s, you know, with the advent of cell phones, that all of a sudden uh, batteries actually started to become more powerful and powerful and powerful. And so the any devices that people imagined before to try to help impair people move or, or uh, augment the motion of people, right, and make them stronger, you know, imagine 
you know, a super amount of swords, you know, that before the limitation was that they had to be tethered, right? right. All of a sudden with batteries, uh, you know, and actually really it was electric cars and cell phones uh, really led to that development. Uh, made it possible to untether these devices, right? Then you had advances in materials. You had like titanium, carbon fiber, and, uh, you know, aerospace-grade aluminum that made them lighter. Uh, a lot of them, actually, you have also fancy polymeric, uh, thermoplastic, you know, elastomeric pieces that are very sophisticated nowadays that make the device kind of comply to the human physiology. And models that are flatter and quieter and, you know, uh, uh, energy efficient. And so they basically felt that, you know, uh, that may be an area of interest right now. We can actually make that happen, right? And so they looked around, there were several technologies. In fact, they found there were a couple of startups already that were publicly funded that were dealing in exoskeletons, one for military and one uh, for kind of uh, medical purposes already. And they basically identified this technology at Vanderbilt University, which uh, we ended up naming Indigo, Independence and Go. Nice. <laughs> right, Indigo, uh, right? And then because the, uh, so this is an exoskeleton. This is for people that are fully paralyzed, basically, you know, because of an injury, typically spinal cord injury, you know, uh, that leaves people paralyzed. So typically at the point of injury, you signal does not go through the spine to the lower parts of the body, right? So uh, they may uh, not sense anything and they may not control anything. So uh, the exoskeletons that we talked about uh, and we developed are meant to be worn, put together on an individual by themselves to uh, that can enable them to get up and walk, you know, with the aid of crutches, you know, scratches or some other stability aid. And pretty much the person interacts with the device themselves. So there's no, you know, anybody else. So, so basically that's what that is. Uh, and so basically the technology was uh, uh, was uh, at Vanderbilt University. And because of my medical experience, again, going back to my experience, corporate asked me to help negotiate the uh, potential license from Vanderbilt University for this technology, right? And it turned out that the young co-inventor of the technology that we also hired, after we licensed the technology, they asked him apparently, who do you want to work with from all the people you met at Parker? And he said, this guy. Nice. <laughs> so I was chosen by the inventor, I guess. <laughs> to, and so basically I was uh, you know, offered the opportunity to build a new business from scratch at Parker to commercialize uh, this particular technology, but also to define what human motion and control means for Parker. In other words, right? So it's an interesting concept, but, you know, you have to break it down, right? Uh, you know, what does that mean exactly? What kind of devices we're talking about? Well, more importantly, you know, what devices we're not including in the space? And so, and we actually discovered that, you know, if you talk about there are already mechatronic, human mechatronic devices, that we call, that's what the field we call it, human mechatronics. Uh, there are already devices out there. Uh, you know, that are commercialized and there's a whole industry. The orthotics and prosthetics industry in, in, in the US and Europe uh, is probably, uh, you know, three or $4 billion market. And there are, uh, you, know, uh, you know, for people who are amputees, especially, you know, people who lose their limbs, uh, there are devices that have a very sophisticated logic. They have the mechanics that basically replicate the motion of, uh, of a good leg and enable these people to live fuller, if not, uh, you know, more full lives than they had before, you know? Yeah. I actually, um, one of my best friends, uh, and actually I live with him currently, uh, mm-hmm. lost his leg like, uh, mm. about a year ago, although luckily it was right. below knee. Um, there was actually like a huge, like medical drama around it where doctors were fighting with each other between above knee or below knee ended up getting to keep his knee. So he has a norm, like good. a much good. less sophisticated prosthetic, but, um, good. I've good. I've, uh, picked like picked him up from, are you familiar with hanger prosthetics there? Yes. Yeah. Very much. In fact, yeah, actually, yes. We are very familiar with that. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Cause I've, I've, um, like gone to, pick him up from hanger from his like his appointments before and like 
it's crazy seeing all the people just walking around outside with the incredibly sophisticated prosthetics and like right. their walking gait just looks normal, you know? Um, like, yep. it's really, really yes. cool to see. Yeah, so what we discovered is that there is already a pretty neat uh, industry there already. Uh, but somehow we felt that kind of the powered orthotics area uh, was underserved. So that's kind of the conclusion of that analysis is that, you know, in a way, if you think about Indigo, the formal description of it is uh, is really a powered orthotic. Orthotic means that you have your limb, like in, you know, but they don't work right, just to simplify. There is some kind of weakness, some kind of neurological impairment that, uh, and uh, you know, prohibits you from using your legs, uh, you know, to move around, you know, normally. And therefore, you need some kind of an orthosis that basically is fitted on top of your existing limbs. And the idea is our specific expertise, and we build a, a world-class uh, engineering team here to do that, is really about applying power uh, to move the human body. You know, So for in cases where people have their limbs, but some neurological impairment doesn't enable them to use them at all or uh, use them partially. So that's kind of really our tra product traje trajectory uh, since we launched the first. So, so basically, yeah, we launched the business. Uh, I was asked to create a business. We launched it, uh, you know, 2013, we formed the business unit. Uh, by end of 2015, we got regulatory clearances from US in Europe and then beginning of 2016 in the US to start selling our full. So the first uh, market was really using a full powered exoskeleton for fully impaired people, fully paralyzed people. So basically you are supporting four joints, knees and hips, right? And uh, in the clinic, that was the first use case for rehabilitation purposes. So it's people, so the clinicians, uh, we have different programs for clinicians to use this device to feed people in it and teach them how to walk again or give uh, or uh, using kind of the exercise that the exoskeleton gives to actually improve their their health. So that, uh, that's kind of the first use case. That first, Sorry. so yeah. yeah, so that first one was for like helping people. They would use it so that they could walk without one. Like they'd use it for exactly. Training? Okay. If they, if they have the potential for recovery, as it's called, yeah. right? The idea is to retrain the body uh, to basically learn how to walk again. For example, a key example there is stroke, right? So stroke, what happens is an injury is uh, in the brain, right? right? And uh, what happens, it, it, it kind of kills the neural connections that uh, you know, enable you to walk. And the idea there is that with these devices, we have several programs that our engineers develop, you know, that uh, the clinicians can use to basically help the person learn how to walk again. Like reestablish those neural connections. Reestablish those neural connections. And, you know, and sometimes it's 100% and sometimes it's not. Sometimes they can only get to, you know, the uh, to a certain stage. They, they may be left with a, a certain residual impairment, but they're still largely functional, right? Uh, so uh, uh, so this, that's, that's the first use case, is using the clinic, right? Uh, then there's a second use case is, really uh, allowing the device to go home with people for use in the, in uh, this is again, fully paralyzed people. In fact, the approval of the FDA is they have to be, you know, spinal cord injured individuals with injury almost like from the high chest and below. So basically they have to have function of their arms, right? But they don't have to have any other function. So basically they're below the high chest. Uh, they can, uh, a indigo personnel, as we call it, can be uh, prescribed to them and they can buy it and take it home after a, a prescribed training program around 40 hours of training to know how to use the device and interact with the device to take it home and use it in the home or in the community. That's kind of the yeah, second case. And then our new product, which is about to be released uh, later this year in a limited way with some partners you mentioned before, <laughs> is uh, our, uh, we found that there is actually a much larger market uh, for partially impaired people. It's like the people who are not fully paralyzed, but they have an impairment in the knee, a weakness in the quads or something that prohibits them from living full lives, right? And the idea here is that we actually take Indigo technology, our ability to, you know, knowledge of how to power and control the uh, assistance to the body to basically erase 
existing impairments, basically, right? And so that's the, the goal. Uh, you know, uh, we think it's a much larger opportunity than the helping the fully paralyzed people. We think there are 2.6 million people in the U.S. that could benefit from this device. And uh, that's kind of our next frontier. Now, if you look at the use cases, uh, and that's where, you know, reliability comes in, you know, I know we would like to talk about that, is, is that the clinical space, both in terms of safety, patient safety and reliability, is probably the most forgiving case because you have doctors around, it's supervised, right? Uh, even if the person falls and injures themselves, you are in a clinical space. They can you can get you know very quickly care to them, right? Yeah. So even in the FDA, you know, didn't have a lot of issues with approving you for clinical use, right? So and also uh, rehab centers, especially the notable big rehab centers in the in the country, they've dealt with so many modern technology that they're kind of more forgiving to if it has a few quirks and things don't work a little bit and, you know, they may complain, but they're used to it, right? But once it, the thing goes home, now you have a person that is not supervised by a clinician. So any injury could be really serious. So you have to be really carefully, careful. And you really don't know how the people are going to use it. So even though you yeah. know, they may try to do crazy things that people tend to do, by the way, that's actually a phenomenon that a lot of people who are either amputees or impaired in some way, they, uh, they use modern technology and it's almost as if they want to prove to themselves and to their peers and to whomever that they are as active or more active than they were before. So they go absolutely berserk in terms <laughs> of like challenging the, the limits. They want to be athletes and, uh, you know, uh, you know, basically track the Appalachian Trail and, uh, you, know, all kind of, you know, all kinds of things like that. So, you know, they really put these devices to their paces. So the use case, full exoskeleton going home is our second case. And then the third one, which I just talked about the partial impairment, that's probably the most stringent one because, you know, the, with the exoskeletons, the full exoskeletons, we expect people to use it, I don't know, three or four times a week, right, for maybe a couple of times each, a couple of hours each, just to get themselves up and walking and getting some exercise, walking around, et cetera, et cetera. But we don't expect them to be using it from morning to night. But with the, uh, the power neonculfotrophosis, as we call it, which is that partial impairment thing, those people are already active. They're already working. They're, uh, so all you're, all you're doing is eliminating the, the cane or whatever assistive device they had. You know, you want to eliminate them from having to use that, right? And so, but those people, now you're dealing, that's their leg. So basically they get up, they're going to wear their, their, uh, their orthotic, powered orthotic device, and they're going to keep it on until they go to bed. Yeah. And then they will go with it everywhere they go. And we, in fact, when we designed our new product, we talked about these uh, scenarios, you know, these personas of where or we're saying, like, I don't know, uh, Jack in uh, Minneapolis in the winter, right? <laughs> He's a student, you know, he likes to hike <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> or, you know, or somebody in Arizona or somebody in New York, you know, having to go through the subway and, you know, and so, so basically just to challenge ourselves that this thing needs to operate like, you know, uh, first of all, it has to be bulletproof in terms of reliability, but also it has to go to and be, uh, you know, almost like disappear uh, from the person. What I meant by that is that, you know, the idea is that uh, it has to be fully reliable and live with the person from day to night, right? And, uh, and that's uh, more stringent uh, kind of use case in terms of, uh, reliability, durability, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we were originally introduced through Adam Barrett of Apex Correct. Ridge. Um, and yeah, he, I really enjoyed his episode of the podcast mm -hmm. just because he's, you know, his uh, resume of the different like companies he's worked with, you included, and as well as like Boston Dynamics and all, right. all the other really cool projects he's worked on. Um, how did you find him and decide to work with him on the reliability engineering right. of, of the exoskeleton? Right. Yeah. So uh, as I mentioned, it's important. I'm glad that we kind of set up those three different, uh, you know, markets that we are targeting our products, right? Yeah. So 
when we f- we first hit the first market, which was really the clinical market, right? We that was most of our sales. By the way, since that time, I won't go into financials. Uh, we're a public company, but we have sold 280 devices. You know, there are 280 devices in the field, uh, 70 of which are personal. So basically, are uh, people walking around in Indigos, you know, in the US and Europe, right? And each one, by the way, is the clinical device is around $130,000, you know, and the personal device is around $100,000. So we're really s- selling Teslas, you know, in a way yeah. with this thing. So uh, when we first hit the um, uh, the clinical market, we started actually having some issues in the field. And we started tracking those very carefully, uh, as you do with uh, medical devices. And I recognized that we had a blind spot. Uh, and the blind spot was, you know, we, we were very careful of recruiting our engineering team. As I mentioned, this is kind of a new emerging field of human mechatronics. You know, it kind of combines control systems, you know, very sophisticated control software uh, with uh, inventive mechanical and materials, mechanical design and materials, and then understanding of the disease, right? Basically, really understanding how the impaired body functions and depending on what disease. So we have PhDs that their PhD was really on on a controller for uh, stroke rehabilitation right? We're using an Indigo device. <laughs> so that's how specific it was, right? So we have these whiz kids of sorts, young 20-somethings, you know, early 30-somethings maybe, uh, you know, with PhD programs for notable universities around the country. And But of course, uh, they don't have the scars of having commercialized the real product. This is a new field too, by the way. There are no established standards. It's not like automotive. You don't have like a history of 100 years. There are no standards to say, you know, what's reliable and what's not. Yeah, there is no, there is no precedent. <laughs> so, and the FDA, by the way, when it gave us a clearance, their screen was safety. You know, are you harming the person? How likely you are to harm anyone, right? right? But it's not exactly reliability. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, so when we started some of those issues, we started addressing them very carefully. We stayed on top of them, but I recognized that we had uh, a blind spot with that team. Uh, that their obsession was really functional performance. I call it. It was it was the Ferrari. Right. They wanted the plate, the thing to be a Ferrari. They wanted the interaction with the individual to be, you know, user friendly and seamless. And they wanted the software to be exactly the right software to actually treat the impairment in the fastest way possible, right? But the question of doing that every single time was the boring aspect that kind of escaped them and they were not as passionate about, <laughs> right? Like the consistency. If the consistency or the reliability of, you know, the device operating well every single time without bugs, yeah, basically, yeah. right? And so... But I recognized I was a business guy. So from the business model standpoint, that could be an issue, especially if I knew that that trajectory was that we started from the easier you know, market. We, we are starting to go now in the personal field. You know, reliability incident, you know, could be dangerous if somebody is not supervised, you know, and they are on their own, you know, or with a companion, you know, at home, right? No medical supervision around there. So like, oh, oh. That's an issue. And then definitely with the last market, which is basically for a product that will be uh, used in any setting from mountains to snow to the desert to, I don't know, wherever they will use it from morning to night, that scared me the most. And I said, okay, we have a blind spot. We need to kind of, uh, you know, understand that and fill it basically. And so uh, we, uh, we did some search, found Adam and then started to work with them. And so, uh, you know, and I knew that in building this little business, this one, this, this, this needed to be more than just lip service, right? I knew with this for my consulting experience, you know, in talking about culture and all of that, that uh, I wanted to uh, somehow embed reliability as something that would, as, as a, was, a, was a basic value, a basic assumption. In other words, you know, yes, we want superior functional performance. We want to be the most advanced device out there. But I want that to be to be a, a Toyota in there. That basically, you know, you you every time you wanted to use that superior functionality, it was available uh, to be used, and that didn't have any quirks to it, right? And so uh, I, I would say that Adam was very good at. 
uh, in the beginning working with, uh, he had to first end his stripes with his engineers. Can you imagine, right? You're coming in to address them with this boring topic to them about reliability. And the first will, of course, challenge him on his understanding of functional performance. But of course, he's shown there. That's how he earned the right to talk to them about reliability by talking to them about, you know, Boston Dynamics and all the cool stuff that yeah, he yeah. worked on. And, uh, and, uh, and then so we made an opening, uh, basically creating some reliability plans and testing and all of that, uh, and then introducing a new language uh, to, to our engineers. Uh, but I knew that, again, for me, uh, I needed to see that that was, that was for them a fundamental assumption, that I didn't have to chase and oversee or make sure that they did the plan or implement the plan, that they did it because... Of course, that's how you do it, you know? And um, as, you know, there was some changeover in the team, I actually made it a, a hiring criterion that people had to have experience or at least kind of a demonstrated passion for uh, reliability in the field. So, uh, you know, when we started hiring new engineers and new leaders, we made sure that, you know, that was part of the selection process because I, again, wanted that to be an assumption. So. That's cool. So, did uh, did you work more with uh, Apex Ridge on like actually beating up your exoskeletons and the the engineering of it, or more on like the reliability culture built into the company, or kind of both? Right, kind of both. In a way, you know how you do culture, how you influence culture uh, is. In many ways, it was good that we did it as the little this little business was growing. Because to change culture once it's formed, you know, it's actually a dangerous, um, you know, uh, project, you know. And typically, you don't impact culture directly. It's uh, typically the impact on culture is indirect. The best way to actually impact culture is to create a visible project, you know, uh, and then in the process of working on the project, introduce these new values and principles, right? Uh, so for us, you know, and actually that was something I cared about from the beginning, you know, uh, I didn't want to have like, you know, a reliability values training, you know, that would not, to me, that would not be helpful, right? What I instead wanted, uh, what we organized with Adam was working on a new, you know, Nomad product, you know, the one that we're about to launch, right? And we didn't worry as much about the existing product, you know, we're just, because we're already in the field, that was kind of containing the issue as opposed to, but I cared more about our new product because it would be in the most demanding use case. And I wanted that to be a design from, uh, you know, well from the beginning with the reliability in mind, you know, right? And that's where I've, I, asked, I asked Adam to focus, work with our team that in the design process for this new Nomad product, uh, that they consider reliability, right? And so he was part of actually the design, but he represented reliability, <laughs> if you know what I mean, right? So there was part of the design workshops. And then he, of course, brought on some tools, which are some statistical tools. He brought some testing approaches. You know, he has his uh, own testing facilities as well. He helped us design testing rigs and testing approaches and to, as well as to put uh, the Noma through its paces. And, uh, and he's actually now our, um, uh, when we do design reviews are a big deal for a company like Parker, but also for the FDA and the medical regulators. Uh, uh, and uh, Adam is our kind of an external uh, expert contributor uh, representing reliability in these meetings. Uh, so when we review different stage gates of the design, you know, you can look at it, okay, have we captured everything from reliability standpoint? Do we need more testing? Are we ready to launch? Are we ready to transfer from design to production? You know, so he has an opinion basically as an external advisor to us. That's really uh, cool. But, uh, you know, in that process. So that's how we're kind of working with him. Yeah. So what are some of like the most extreme things that you've put your product through to test it uh, for, you know, those mountainous conditions or right however it's going so, to be. so so you're looking for uh, dramatic failures uh, so yeah uh, i would say you know the uh, uh, um, the one that i like the most is that we actually have a squat uh, a squat like uh, device back for the big exoskeletons so literally you know we load up you know a contraption here with weight and the exoskeleton has to literally do squats up and down, up and down, up and down. with a person <laughs> in it or on its own 
with with on its own. Oh, well, we, cool. we put on its own basically, yeah, yeah. you know, just to sort of make sure that it can hold the the weight. Uh, so what else? I think yeah, another one was uh, we had an issue with uh, batteries popping out in the first. Uh, uh, iteration of the product and so our, our engineering team redesigned it and then what they did is that they they basically fixed the exoskeleton you know on the ground and then had a truck pull <laughs> try to pull the battery away you know so just to make sure that uh, you know it wasn't going anywhere so uh, it, was, it was a bunch of there's always something going on we have actually a kind of a glassed area with different contraptions in there uh, where, uh, you know, we, we test these things to like, I don't know, 2 million cycles, right? So, for example, the the Nomad device, um, you know, we want it to last to go for at least three years without a single maintenance, you know, to it. So, uh, so basically... That's amazing. You know, it's that's, yeah, like- because the idea is... Uh, that's disruption, right? Yeah. Because every time you 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 uh, if the device doesn't work, it has to go back to the orthotist. It has to come back to us. The person has to get the loaner. <laughs> it's a big deal, a disruption to them. Again, it's their leg, so they hate that. Yeah. Because all of a sudden you would have, you know, I'm going to go back to my walker, you know. <laughs> yeah, with so, prosthetics, so, I know uh, it's, you need maintenance much more often than every three right. years. Well, like we set a high standard yeah. there just to make sure that we don't we don't have to. And so you we have always back there. In fact, we have a a device that literally walks, you know. So literally it goes through the, the walking motions of the foot, and then we put devices there and we have them do like two million cycles just to see if the orthotic underneath breaks or not, whether we sh- it shows fractures on the carbon fiber or not, and stuff like that. I don't know. It may not be that extreme, but that's basically so. It's like robotic legs simulating walking inside the orthotic. Exactly, (laughs) that's really cool. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So yeah, that's uh, that's how we kind of worked with uh, with Adam. I think was a, uh, uh, and I'm very happy where we are now uh, because you know you feel much more confident that you see from the business side. If you don't have reliability dialed up, you know dialed in, I guess the you don't, you know, you always have to watch your back because, you know, a, an incident in the field, especially when you start to scale, right, can be really, really detrimental to you building your brand, building your business and all of that, right? So, and that's what I'm trying to basically tell the engineers is that I know it may be boring to do all these tests and things, uh, but, you know, if you want to continue, have the opportunity to, to develop fun, uh, you know, new functionalities and new need products, you need to make sure that the product in the field does well. Yeah. <laughs> because if it doesn't, we can't build a business, which basically means we can't find new programs that for you to work on. And so you have to kind of teach them the full cycle, right? And kind of, uh, uh, you know, rationalize the need for them to spend time on reliability, right? So... Are you able to share what kind of time frame you're looking at for uh, the the product for partial impairments getting out to market? Right. So, um, you know, uh, uh, later this year, uh, we are partnering with a, a major um, network of orthotic clinics in the country, right? To basically, uh, the, um, there are some 3,000 clinics in the U.S. that are fit orthotics and prosthetics, basically. So there is one company that uh, owns over 800 of them, right? So it's a major channel. And so we have an agreement uh, with them to basically help us uh, clinically test kind of the last set of clinical tests uh, before we go into commercial release. So those are happening this summer, basically. June is right now the timeline. Uh, COVID was not helpful because it kind of, uh, delayed some of our development. We couldn't recruit patients, you know, and if you can't put devices on people, it's, you can't really test them. You know, it, it doesn't work. Human mechatronics need a human. Yeah. <laughs> Keep developing. Right. And, uh, and so, so we hope this summer to go into that. If those go well, uh, we expect in 2023 to go in limited release, which basically means we're starting to deploy uh, devices that stay home with people. Right. Uh, and uh, and so we see are very careful because these devices uh, don't have precedence, right? So you want to be really careful when you put them in the wild. So we're going through very 
careful steps. Uh, you know, we, we think the device is pretty much done right now, but we would like to first bring in the orthotists, work with the orthotists, fit it, uh, you know, uh, train the individuals that are going to wear it, take it home for a month, watch it remotely. All of this, by the way, is connected, cloud. We can monitor these devices remotely, right? Uh, to see, you know, this device performs well for a month, take the device back, see if there are any tweaks to it. Next year, we're releasing it to the wild in a limited way, kind of, you know, maybe, I don't know, 50 devices will go home next year, right? But after that, uh, you know, you're off to the races, major commercial release with uh, a commercial partner, basically. That's amazing. So I, I do want to, since I have you on the call here, I do want to ask you about some fun kind of futuristic stuff, if that's cool. Sure. Uh, so you, you did mention earlier at the call that a use case is for this is to make like superhuman strength possible. <laughs> right. Is, is that in the plans for the distant future? <laughs> right. So here it is, right? In the beginning of this project, we recognized there were actually three different big domains where exoskeletons could be applied, you know? So there was a military domain. And in fact, some one of our main competitors, Exobionics, which is a NASDAQ listed company based in California, that's where their origins are. It's uh, Pecan, I believe it's Lockheed, if I'm not mistaken, uh, had an, ex a, an exoskeleton program uh, funded by some government agency to literally do the superhuman soldier, right? That's that was crazy. kind of the idea, right? <laughs> So that's military. Uh, then then uh, the industrial folks have been trying to do something for that workers can wear for material handling uh, in uh, in warehouses in the in the in the shop uh, to basically be able to lift bigger loads and to also prevent injuries for people, right? Uh, so that's kind of the industrial space. And, and both of those spaces are you're dealing with able-bodied people, mm -hmm. right, uh, as we call them. But you're somehow augmenting the capabilities. They, they lift heavier and they go more distances, you know, right? So in the beginning of this project, uh, we decided that we needed to focus, you know, with startups, even if they're internal, you know, you really need to kind of focus on an area make some headway, convince the sponsors or investors that you have a, you know, a successful, you know, business and then continue building on that as opposed to having a wide front, right? So uh, the exoskeleton, you know, for us was developed really for an impaired individual. So, and interestingly that uh, the, the uh, encounter intuitively, even though it had regulatory barriers and all of that, uh, it was the first uh, field of exoskeletons to become commercial, <laughs> right? So we could sell immediately and that mattered to Parker, right? Whereas it wasn't clear that the military still now, now nine years after, I don't believe they have any sales, right? It was still a lab thing. And uh, even though there's still activity, there are several companies that work on military-oriented exoskeletons here. The Chinese are working on one. The Russians are working on one. <laughs> you know, everybody's working on a military exoskeleton. Uh, and, and, then, and then there is actually the past three or four years, there's been a lot of interest in, in industrial exoskeletons, uh, which are used, again, for material handling. Some of them are more passive, meaning passive means they are not motorized. Yeah, right. like, but they are in a way protecting the human from load or enabling the human to lift for longer or, uh, again, protecting from injury. And there's some with sensing capability or even some power capability. That are some, I think that's really still a, a, a new field, not quite there yet. Uh, we try to focus on the medical piece, which is really about impaired uh, individuals. So. Uh, I believe uh, augmentation is coming, you know, uh, I think it will happen, uh, but I, I feel it's a little, it, uh, it lags behind the impaired, you know. Yeah, it's uh, not it's, needed. It's, it's <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. this is a direct, <laughs> exactly. huge impact on people's lives right now. Exactly, 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 exactly. right. So that's, I, but I think it's going to happen. I mean, I think these are not going away. Uh, there's a lot of this interest. I mean, our we were we developed the business on a budget, being under a disciplined corporate entity, right? But uh, our two competitors, you know, I would say by now they raised 250 to 300 million dollars each Oof. in commercializing their exoskeletons. You know, there's a lot of yeah. 
VC funds uh, out there for these kinds of technologies right now. Yeah. So how how much do you guys do much with like neural implants to be able to control the exoskeletons with your brain act uh, like right. and no that's, buttons or anything? That's a great question. So that's kind of intent recognition, as we call it, right? So, so um, that's another debate we had in the beginning of this project, and they and, and you know you have to take some risks as to uh, and make some judgments as to uh, the readiness of the different technologies, right? So there are a few different technologies. Can you? Uh, how do you read intent? In other words, you can obviously power somebody's legs, right? But the question is. How do you connect the person to read their intent, basically, right? As to what they want to do. They want to get up, they want to walk, they want to stop, you know, you know what they want to do. So uh, at the time when we began, and I still believe it's still the case now, even though there were several, no, it's easy to create hype on the net about these things. You know, they're very exciting. Uh, but to be able to read uh, brain states, you know, you can probably, I'm told by our experts, maybe two or three, you know, in other words, on, off, and maybe something else, right? So maybe you can initiate a sequence by having some kind of a contraption reading your brain signals, right? You know, and, and that happened. You can be able to turn on and off, maybe one more state, but that's about it. You know, but the control of a whole body uh, with all the different uh, modalities you, you need to have to keep a person safe, right? Uh, it's almost impossible to do right now, I believe, but just by reading neural signals, right? Now, you can, but you can then tap on internally on signals, right? Uh, and then use those to drive the machine. But even that has been rather unreliable. There are EMGs called, right? Uh, you know, and there are several devices that tried that. We felt that that was kind of not reliable because every person's signal is kind of weaker or stronger and it, it requires specific fitting. And, you know, imagine now every time you wear the device, you know, you have to hit exactly the right spot to read the signal. So we chose actually to go from a more, um, not haptic, but we have, a, a, you know, our device reads intent by looking at the angles of the, of the thigh so it is kind of the natural way that the person positions themselves to move. So by actually starting, starting almost like, uh, you know, almost like a leg, we call our device a legged segue. You know, in other words, if they, the person leans forward, it basically tells the device, I want to advance. If it leans back, it tells the device, I want to stop or pause, right? And then the other thing we have is that we have, uh, we have vibrations, you know, that the person can feel even though they can't feel anything else because the, the vibrations go through their bones, right? So to basically, uh, you know, if uh, if the person wants to move, they lean forward, you know, then the device will vibrate, right? And basically, and then you start counting. And then basically the person maintains the posture that basically it tells the device, I want to advance, right? And you can set all those adjustments that basically the device communicates with the person through vibration, right? God. So we found neat tricks like that to be able to avoid what we call unreliable ways of, you know, tapping into your brain or signals on the device to basically have a reliable signal of intent to the device, right? Uh, but I, I would say that's probably coming. Already you hear of... Um, uh, now, then there is a stimulation. This is about reading intent. I would say uh, reading intent directly from the brain or from other nerves is coming, right? There are, uh, especially for prosthetics, there are some work that was done by Alfred Mann Foundation. I don't know if you're familiar with them. I understand one of the major prosthetics manufacturers also bought the technology. And, it's, and that basically is kind of implanting kind of a rice kind of size, yeah. uh, you know, you know, device that somehow, uh, you know, processes the signals of your brain, right? And then directs those to control uh, prosthetic, right? So it's coming. It's not yet commercial, but it's coming. I would say maybe a decade or two, it will probably be, be, be there. Uh, now, for stimulation, though, that's another field. Now you are stimulating the nerves, right? So the holy grail of these is actually a convergence of pharma, you know, exoskeleton type devices 
and then stimulation on the nerves. So, and we think that's like a it will spinal require all the three. So, yes. So basically right now, what you see that in fact, we're invited by the VA to participate in the study uh, using uh, Indigo, which uh, they're basically implanting these stimulators on the spine of these veterans, you know, that are paralyzed. And what happens is by uh, stimulating the spine, you're now opening, opening it again to learning. You're basically you're somehow opening up the signal. Interesting. <laughs> right? and, and so now you can use exoskeletons to teach people something. And you can even maybe use stem, stem cell or other pharma interventions to, you know, basically uh, encourage the growth of those cells, of the other spine cells and stuff like that, and accelerate that learning too. So we think going forward, people that are deemed now to be uh, having no potential for recovery will have a chance of opening up a potential using uh, stimulation, right, a neurostimulation. And then in conjunction with, and then the exoskeletons then become a teaching tool, right? Uh, so basically the idea is that you wear the exoskeletons until you're at the point where you don't need them anymore, right? Uh, you know, because you now uh, started, you know, to recover. Uh, in all likelihood, you'll probably improve your situation. So you'll be more mobile, but it needs, needs some degree of assistance from exoskeletons. We think orthotic devices that are intelligent and powered are here to stay, right? Uh, but uh, definitely there will be advances in pharma, stem cell research, and uh, neurostimulation that will open up the possibility of recovery to more individuals that are now, you know, impaired, basically. That's why that's we think the whole thing is going. That's super exciting. Yeah, well, I agree. Before we wrap up, is there anything else that you want to call an extra shout out or attention to about, like just in exoskeleton industry or about Indigo? Right. Um, so uh, I just wanted to say it was a privilege to work in this. Uh, I would say it's kind of the first time in my career that, you know, what I worked on had uh, a true purpose, right? And it was really tangible. Um, you know, you, you see these stories of the people and being able to impact them a little bit, you know, to make them a little bit more uh, mobile, a little bit more, you know, improving their quality of life somehow. Uh, you know, gives real meaning to, you know, tech, you know, it's not just cool for its own sake, but actually impacts people's lives. And, and for me on the business side, what I felt uh, was necessary was uh, to make this effect sustainable, you know, in, you know, in America, in, you know, modern, you know, capitalistic societies, right? So, you know, uh, if you don't make sure that there is a viable business model around the technology, then the technology and the impact it has on people is not sustainable. So basically, the way I kind of justify my existence uh, and my contribution was to make sure that uh, we make, I fought hard the past nine years to try to, uh, you know, pass on the baton to the next generation of, of uh, business people and engineers to continue developing this technology. Right. So. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.